Uh, last week, we talked a little bit about the, the going out of the disciples, and, and the big point last week was to let you know that you are a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Even though you may not be ordained or licensed to go and do ministry, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you have a call to be someone who's doing ministry day by day as you go. And today we're going to talk a little bit about the cost of doing ministry. What is the, the risk of doing ministry? What, is it, what does it cost someone to do ministry? What does it cost someone to be a follower of Jesus Christ? And a lot of us, when we think about what it costs us to follow Jesus Christ, we think, well, man, I had to get up uh, on a Sunday morning at you know 9.30 and make sure I was at Sunday school, and then I had to be here at 10.30 to make sure I was here at worship. And, and we look at ourselves and say, well, man, I, I, I sacrificed uh, you know, two hours of sleep to be here uh, for Sunday morning. And for some of us, that is the entirety of the cost of discipleship that we have is we've given uh, some of our time uh, to God. And it's almost like we tip God a little bit uh, for, for, for what he's done for us. So, so yes, Jesus, you died on the cross for our sins. Yes, you rose again. Uh, and because you did all that for me, I'm going to just throw a little bit at you. I'm going to tip. We just passed the offering plate. And some of us, we give that way, right? Like just a little bit, um, a token, just to remind God, like, yeah, I understand where I've been. And some of us, we say that's the entirety of our discipleship cost is the, the tip measure of it. You know, so others of us would say, well, it affects other areas in our life. I'm not allowed to go and do some of the things that I used to do before I knew Jesus Christ, right? I'm not allowed to go out and drink and carouse with everybody, and I'm not allowed to womanize anymore because I know Jesus Christ, and that's, that's wrong. And we say, when I abstain from these activities, there uh, I'm paying this cost. But really, that's just a benefit, right? Uh, you know, carousing and womanizing uh, is not good for you, right? It doesn't do you well. It's actually bad for you. And today we're going to talk about what the true cost of being a follower of Jesus Christ is. It's more than a tip. It's more than a, a lack of ability to do activities that you used to do. It is a total overarching overhaul of who you are. It's a dramatic change of everything that you've ever done. And the, the, the whole focus of your life shifts when you know Jesus Christ. And the way we're going to do this is Mark, we're working through the book of Mark. If you have your Bible, open to Mark chapter 6. In the book of Mark, uh, the entirety of the gospel of Mark is about Jesus Christ. Um, it starts talking about Jesus Christ. It'll end talking about Jesus Christ. In fact, that's what we call our gospels, right? They're the stories that tell us about Jesus. Only two times in the book of Mark does Mark take the perspective off of Jesus and focus it on someone else. He does it very early when he focuses on the ministry of John the Baptist, and he's going to do it right now uh, in John or in Mark chapter 6 when he focuses on the death of John the Baptist. Now you have to remember where this story falls in Mark's tale, right? He's been telling the story of Jesus and his disciples, and then all of a sudden Jesus sends his disciples out two by two to go and to do ministry. And then he gives us this aside, this story that doesn't seem to fit about the death and beheading of John the Baptist, one of the more gruesome stories in the New Testament for sure. And so he gives us this aside, and we have to figure out why would he, first of all, why is it included? Because it's not about Jesus. And second of all, uh, why would he include it here? Why does it, why does it show up right here when his disciples are out doing ministry, the first time they've gone away from Jesus Christ to do ministry, the story of the death of John the Baptist shows up. And this is what it says, Mark chapter 6, starting in verse 14. It says, King Herod 
heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. So he heard of Jesus sending out his apostles. He heard of the miracles Jesus was doing. The name of Christ was well known. So King Herod heard of it, and some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he is Elijah. And others said he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. And I'm going to stop here because this is kind of the, the, the prelude to the story. So they're going to, they give away the ending of it. John's been beheaded. Um, but, but basically what's going on is the ministry of Jesus, his disciples, is beginning to get out of hand. It's beginning to go from this kind of really localized thing and one teacher to where there's now these 12 other guys going out and spreading the news about Jesus and doing miracles with the power of Jesus Christ. And as this is going on, rumors start to circulate about who Jesus could possibly be because the powers that are at work through him and his followers is great and dramatic. Remember, he's raising little girls from the dead. He's making uh, people who, are, who have been sick for a period of 12 years be well. He's taking people who are demon-possessed and making them whole of mind and body. It's pretty miraculous things going on, and now his disciples are doing those things. And so John is, uh, Herod is hearing these things, and people are like, this guy is John the Baptist. And other people are speculating it could be a prophet, or this guy, or that guy. But Herod knows, in his heart, he feels very certain that he beheaded John the Baptist, but somehow Jesus is the reincarnated John the Baptist. Now, Jesus and John the Baptist were contemporaries, okay? That means their lives overlapped a lot, right? You remember the story of the birth of Jesus Christ, right? Mary, who is pregnant with Jesus, walks in. Uh, she sees her cousin, Elizabeth, who is pregnant with John the Baptist. And so, like, there's not more than nine months difference between the two, right? They're, they're very similar in age. But John the Baptist began ministry sooner than Jesus. At a younger age, he went out baptizing people in the Jordan River, um, and so his ministry began before Jesus to, to prepare the way for Christ. Jesus was baptized by John, and then somewhere between the baptism of Jesus Christ and this period right now in the middle of the ministry of Jesus Christ, John the Baptist had been captured, arrested, and executed. Okay, so, so there's been a lot of things going on there, and this is what uh, Herod says. So, so obviously Jesus couldn't just be John the Baptist, but Herod, you know, superstitious or whatever, said, man, this must be John Verse 17 said, For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted him to be put to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. And when he had heard him, he was greatly perplexed, yet he heard him. Gladly, This goes back and begins to tell the story of what happened to John the Baptist. John the Baptist was arrested, and the reason he was arrested is something that every follower of Jesus Christ should be willing to be arrested for. Right? He spoke the truth to power. Right? Herod was the great power of that area at that time. By the way, he goes by King Herod here. Um, he's not a king. Um, he's just kind of like a local governor, but he took the claim uh, that his father, Herod the Great, had and put it on himself. That's actually what got him in trouble. Ultimately, the, the Caesars grabbed him and arrested him and sent him to an island in exile because he tried to call himself King Herod. But this Herod guy, it's just a Herod Antipas, if you're really familiar with the Herods from uh, early you know, Bible times. 
But Herod Antipas is there, and uh, he's got some relational problems, right? He, he says, I want to marry my brother's wife. That's wrong, by the way. I don't really feel like I should have to tell you that today. But if you're at a family gathering and you see your sister-in-law, and you're like, man, she's really attractive. I'd like to marry my sister-in-law. Don't do it. All right? It's pretty simple. It's not that hard. I've got two sister-in-laws. No interest. No interest. You're good. Right? <laughs> it's a bad decision. Don't do it. But for some reason, uh, Herod said, I, I really like Philip's wife, Herodias, right? Similar name to him, right? Maybe that's, maybe that's what attracted him to her. Uh, he's like, well, I really like Philip's wife. She's, she must have been attractive, or I don't know what it was about her, but somehow she got her hooks in him. And so he took his brother's wife as his own. And John the Baptist saw this, and he's like, that's not right. right? And sometimes stuff goes on in culture around us where we as believers in Jesus Christ have to kind of just say, hey, guys, that's not right. Like, I, I'm not here to, like, judge. Like, I'm not perfect. I don't have some massive holiness about me. But that thing that you're trying to call right is not right. And so what, what John the Baptist did was he publicly declared that what Herod was doing was wrong. Herod didn't like this, but more so Herod's new wife really didn't like this, right? And you can imagine, right, people are talking about you around town because you know, you used to be with his brother, and now you're with him. And then this guy, this rabble-rouser out by the Jordan River, is constantly bringing it up. Like, every chance he gets, it seems like he's bringing up the fact that you're shacking up with your brother-in-law, or now it's your husband. I don't really understand how this thing works out, right? And so she gets really upset, and she gets irate, and she gets angry. And so she goes to her new husband, and she says, you're going to arrest this man and Herod being the coward that he is right looks at his wife and says yes dear right that's probably good marriage advice as well but he says yes dear so he takes his wife take, take, takes the advice of his wife uh, and arrests John and throws him in prison Herod um, uh, was was a person who stood in kind of like a middle ground he didn't appreciate what John was saying about him but at the same time right he, he had like a respect for John he saw John as a holy and righteous man, and so he didn't really want to do anything to harm John. He just wanted to kind of live in the middle between the tension of, of what Herodias wanted and what would have been right, which would have been releasing the man who was just speaking truth at the time. But as time went forward, Herodias constantly was seeking for a way to get John executed. That was her whole mission uh, with John the Baptist, is I'm going to get this guy killed. But Herod would bring John in periodically and John would speak to him and Herod enjoyed listening to him even though he didn't understand what he was saying guys this has a parallel later in the New Testament right if you think about this this is literally the story of the arrest of Jesus Christ right take Herod replace him with Pilate and you have this exact same story Pilate brings Jesus in Pilate has no desire to execute Jesus right he looks for ways out of executing Jesus consistently seeking ways to let the holy and righteous person go but because of other people, because of other pressures, because of other people's preferences, all of a sudden, what does he do? He caves, right? And Pilate would listen to Jesus and enjoy his teaching, but he caves uh, to what goes on. Verse 21 says, An opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. The word banquet here is probably not the best term. Right? This is not like, like you went to a wedding banquet. Right? This, this is more like a massive, crazy party. Right? This is this, there, there's going to be a lot of wine, a lot of beer, a lot of everything, and a lot of bad decisions are going to be made 
at this banquet, right? And so at this big banquet, he's got everyone there. All at the, it's the who's who of uh, you know, Judea at the time. And when Herod's da- Herodias' daughter came in and danced, this is probably not Herod's daughter with her. It's probably Philip's daughter um, and Herodias' daughter. Um, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish and I will give it to you. So he brings in his, his kind of like young adult you know, daughter in there to dance and it's probably lewd and inappropriate and for some reason there was you know they're all drunk out of their minds right and so like man this is great and then he makes this promise and this is this reminds me of an old testament promise where people make rash vows but he makes this promise he says i will give you anything you want up to half of my kingdom half of all the wealth that i have anything more than that i won't give to you but anything up to that is yours and he says this in front of everybody right it's a major promise he makes uh, and so she, verse 24, went out and said to her mother, what should I ask for? Which is good wisdom, right? And then her mother said, ask for the head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king. And she said, and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word. So he immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and he beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mothers. And when the disciples heard of it, they came and they took his body and laid it in a tomb. This is a gruesome graphic story, right? Like this is is an Old Testament story tucked in the middle of a gospel account. Where, where this girl goes to her mother and she says, Mom, I've been given this like huge ability to get anything I want. And her mother is so vindictive and so angry. What does she ask for? She asks for the execution of the man who's been a thorn in her side. And so the, the daughter goes back to John and says, Mama wants, or Mama wants, I want this, this, this present, this head of this guy who's in prison that you have. And Herod is exceedingly sorry Right? He recognizes that once, like what I said in a moment was not wise. But he looked around the room and he saw everybody who had any authority in that area. He saw all the military commanders and the religious leaders and everybody who mattered to him. And because of peer pressure, right, and because he had made a promise with all the peer pressure around him, he caved. And he went and had John executed. And this is like a really gross gift, right? He gives the head to the girl and the girl gives the head to her mother like it's 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 pretty graphic and pretty gross and the question is why here like first of all that's an interesting story like it's a story that i would have enjoyed uh telling my kids when they were small i like to tell the gruesome like graphic stories to my children um, when they were like you know seven eight nine because it's really good bible stories you know jezebel getting pushed out of a tower and dogs licking up her blood like there's all sorts of good stories in the bible um this is one of those stories that i would have enjoyed telling but But the question that you have to ask yourself as you're going through the book of Mark is, why would Mark tell this story? It's not in chronological order, right? This didn't happen as the disciples were going out because it was told as kind of a retrospective, like, remember how this happened. And the answer to that question is really quite simple. The disciples were beginning to go and do the work of Jesus Christ. They were beginning to go live the righteous life of a follower of Jesus Christ. And the only example that they had other than Jesus Christ was John the Baptist. And they got to look at what John the Baptist experienced. And that was the experience of a faithful person in their day and age. 
That was the experience they had to go on. And so their expectation in ministry, their expectation in life was that. That's different than our expectation, right? This is a radical obedience to the point that could cause you your death. When, when Peter and James and Bartholomew and all those other dudes got up and went to go and do the work of Jesus Christ, they were literally taking this story of the execution of John the Baptist, and that was the background for the ministry that they had. They knew that that story was real, and that story was nearby, and that story was likely going to be repeated in their lives. Yet they still went. You know, out of the 12 disciples, um, 11 of them um, died in fairly bad ways. That's church history, right? 11 of the 12 disciples died in fairly bad ways. That includes Matthias, excluding Judas, I suppose. Um, but you have 11 who die in fairly bad ways. And the one who didn't die in a tragic way, like being quartered or lanced or crucified, the one who didn't die that way was stuck on an island and left alone. Right? He was exiled to an island with no one to care for him. That was the life of the disciples. That was the end game for the disciples. So this story of John the Baptist let them know like, where we're going is dangerous territory. And then we sit here today, some 2,000 years later, and we say, man, that must have been hard for them, but I'm so thankful that I don't have to be like that. Right? Our commitment level to Jesus Christ is not that commitment level. Right? If someone came to us and said, if you do this, you'll experience this sort of turmoil, this sort of trouble, this sort of problems. We're scared to tell people that we're followers of Jesus Christ because we may not get invited to the company Christmas party. Right? Like we're, we're, we're scared to, to even vocally share that there is a, like an objective source of right and wrong as demonstrated through Scripture. We're scared to say that because we'll be seen as being intolerant. Right? Like, I don't want to be intolerant. Like, I'll be anything else, but I don't want to be seen as intolerant. That would be tragic. And so we, we, we have all these, like what I would consider to be minor fears. And the disciples, when they went out to do ministry... They had the reality of the death of John the Baptist hanging around them. And they knew what they were doing when they would go and speak truth. Because when you go and share the gospel, guys, it's a powerfully offensive message. We don't see it that way because we've been saved by Jesus Christ. Most of us in here know Jesus Christ. And so we walk out of here and we're like, man, that's okay. Like, yeah, Christ died for our sins, but look at how much he loves us. He died so that we could receive forgiveness but you know the message of the gospel is you look at someone who's living in their sin and you say what you're doing your choices your sin separated you from god and it will lead to eternal damnation this is where it will take you if you continue to walk down that is an offensive message especially in a world where we think that you're okay i'm okay we're all okay it's an offensive message but we're scared to share it. And this is us today. We, we, we have the New Testament examples of the disciples, and we say, boy, they really had to go through a lot. And then we're called to have the same radical, reckless obedience to follow Jesus Christ, and we don't. We, we're, we're scared. We're cowards. I was, I was talking to people and said, man, what, what does that look like? Like today, what does it look like to be a follower of Jesus Christ? What does that look like? And, and, <laughs> and we were going through and we were talking about like evangelism and how it can be dangerous if you like sometimes we can be too 
uh, law-oriented and not enough grace-oriented, and we can be so busy telling people you're going to hell, right, that we miss out on the fact that, 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 that God still loves them. And I, I said to this group of guys I was with, I said, you know, that's not really the problem in our culture, though, is it? We're not really, like, there are people who are way too far down that path, but typically our problem isn't that we're too hard on people in evangelism. Our problem is we refuse to tell people the truth, the offensive truth. And the offensive truth is without Jesus Christ, we are all lost in sin. And that, that, that degree of lostness is absolute, total lostness. And none of us can find our way without Jesus Christ to what forgiveness and grace looks like. Church, I want to tell you today, I want to challenge you today, when you look at the first century example of these disciples as they went out and they had the death of John the Baptist informing their life, I want you to know that story, while it's not current today, like I don't know anyone who's going to be beheaded for speaking truth to power in the United States of America. I don't know anyone. You can, that's a beautiful part about free speech, is right? We can say stuff, and while we can still get some like cultural pushback, we're probably not going to end up executed, right? But, but we are so scared because I don't even know why. We're, we're scared because we'll lose out on future influence, we'll lose out on relationships. But the truth is, there is nothing beyond this life for a whole lot of people that's, a, that, that's any good. And we don't tell them that there's a better way forward. We don't tell them that there's a God who loves them. We don't tell them that there's a path out of this. Instead, what do we do? We just kind of like, yeah, you know, you're okay. What do you believe? And they tell us what they believe. We're like, yeah, okay, that's cool. Right? When, they're, when they're wrong, we don't say you're wrong. Right? I know it, it doesn't feel good. Right? And sometimes we don't feel qualified to look at someone and say, everything that you're saying is garbage. You probably shouldn't say it like that. But they've got to know. Because there's a whole slew of Christians across, we'll go across Milan County because that's where we are. There's a whole slew of Christians across Milan County who when they're confronted with what I would consider to be like heretical things that would lead no one towards salvation, instead of standing up and saying, yeah, that's not right. Whether it's about atheism or some sort of syncretism, which is kind of a blending of all these different religious faiths, because we have a lot of that going on. You take a little bit from this, and a little bit from this, and a little bit from this, and really in the middle of that, you lose the gospel. We just need to tell people. Tell people the truth. And when you speak truth to power, it'll lead to some bad responses. John had a negative response. When you speak truth to people who are in authority, there's going to be people who will oppose what you say. And some of those people will seek to destroy you, and some people may even succeed in destroying you. Right? That can happen. And it's sad, and it's tragic, and I wish that wasn't so. But the destruction of the body is okay. This body that we have, a gift from God, right? That this life that we have, which is a gift from God, right? it's given to us so we can live it for the glory of God, not for the glory of us. And, and I don't know about you, but, but there's a lot of opportunities there's a lot of opportunities to tell people about Jesus Christ that I run into in my life. I mean, there's a lot of opportunities for me to share the gospel. And there are several times that I can remember, right? In the last six months, there's several times I can remember where instead of taking the opportunities as the door were open and to tell someone the truth about who God is and how much God loves them, that he would die for them to save them from their sin, which has separated them from God. Instead of telling that, right, I transitioned to talking about the weather. And boy, is it nice outside, Right? 
And why do I do that? Why do we do that? And the answer is because when we look at the life of Jesus Christ and we look at the life of his disciples, we say, boy, those were good stories for them back then. And man, that must have been tough being that committed to following Jesus Christ. But praise the Lord, I live in America today. And I had to mess with this nonsense. Guys, the heroes of the faith take seriously the risks of discipleship. The risk of making other people disciples. And those risks are real. It will lead to loss of, like, loss of relationships. There may be someone who, as you share the gospel with them, as you point out that they're wrong in what they believe, they'll see you as an intolerant bigot. Right? We use words really common today. Bigot used to be a very uncommon word. But it wasn't thrown out like it is today. Big, bigot's thrown out a million times a day right now. Right? And you'll be called an intolerant bigot. You'll be called someone who's, you know... It's just, it's just the worst of the worst. You're everything that's wrong with the world that we live in. But if you're telling the truth, and you're telling the truth with as much grace as you can, and I don't think John the Baptist was intentionally trying to get himself arrested. I think John the Baptist was intentionally trying to tell the truth about the situation that if you're telling the truth, you're telling it with as much grace as you can while still being honest with what's going on, the results are up to God. And God is good to take care of those that are his. And sometimes those stories end in a negative light, but they also lend in an amazing amount of commitment. These disciples were more committed to follow Jesus Christ because they saw what had happened to John. And they knew that this life was brief and it was a gift and they weren't guaranteed another day. So they were going to take today and they were going to use it to the best of their ability. They weren't going to give up on that. Some of y'all, some of us, are more worried about long days than we are about good days. Any day that we can make Jesus Christ's name great is a good day. Let's not worry about maximizing the number of them. Let's worry about maximizing the quality of them. Some people will take offense. Some people will seek your destruction. Some people will literally destroy you for the sake of the gospel. But it's okay because we have a message to share that has to be shared. And if you won't share that message, and I'm not sharing that message, the gospel stops. This will be the last generation. Won't be anyone after us until God raises up the rocks to cry out. Well, we don't. Guys, I want you to take seriously the fact that if you call yourself a follower of Jesus Christ, it's a call to self-denial and his purposes over your own. That means every day, Everything you do, his purposes are more important than yours. His goals are more important than your goals. His dreams are more important than your dreams. And, and that doesn't mean that you won't receive any of the things that you long for. It just means, right, that his purposes come first. And if you'll do that, if you'll seek his kingdom first and his righteousness, then all of these things will be added to you as we're promised in Scripture. Disciples follow Jesus Christ fully faithfully to the ends of the earth to make his name known. How are you doing? How are you doing at that work today? Let's pray.